Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. This is episode 165, Bridget Imbolc and Irish Cosmology with Sharon Pace McLeod. Amanda has been so excited to cover this with an actual expert for such a long time that I was so pleased. And I just kind of sat there very happy. Yeah, I, I was so stoked. It was lovely. Sharon uh, bared with us as we uh, overcame bad internet connections and made this episode happen. And I am so glad we did. Yeah, I think it worked out great. I think uh, our listeners are going to be very happy with the results. Amazing. And this is well-timed because Imbolc, the holiday, is on Saturday, February 1st. Yeah, so our listeners are going to catch it like a few days before, and then they can uh, decide whether or not they'd like to celebrate. Do you know who I decide to celebrate every week, Julian? <laughs> is it our new patrons? <laughs> our new patrons, Nerissa, Roz, Kavan, and Gerald, welcome. You join the distinguished ranks of such patrons as our supporting producer level supporters, Philip, Megan, Deborah, Molly, Skyla, Samantha, Sammy, Neil, Jessica, and Phil Fresh, and our legend-level patrons, Brittany, Josie, Kylie, Charlotte, Kylo the Husky, Morgan, BM Yep, Scotty, Audra, Chris, Mark, Mr. Folk, Sarah, and Jack Marie. They are always leading the celebration. Absolutely. And Julie, remind us what we were drinking this episode. Well, at Sharon's suggestion, we cracked open a couple of bottles of Freyak, which is a heather ale made by the Williams Brothers Brewing Company in Scotland. Uh, and so heather ales actually date back to at least 2000 BCE and are probably the oldest style of ale still produced in the world. So this particular batch is brewed with malted barley, sweet gale, and feathering heather. And then the hot ale is also poured into a vat of fresh heather flowers where it infuses for about an hour or so before it's fermented. Oh, it's so cool. This was such an interesting, like lovely taste, not something that I would really think of as like beer generally. Mm. And I am definitely going to be seeking it out more in the future. I'm a big fan of floral beers, personally. It's it's me too. It's very close to my heart. Delish. And Julia, were you like reading, watching, listening to anything cool this week? So I kind of accidentally fell down a Star Wars rabbit hole. <laughs> Do tell. Was it Baby Yoda? Uh, it, it's always Baby Yoda. It's always the Mandalorian. I just have very strong feelings about all of it. Uh, and it was also at the recommendation of editor Eric, who said that we should start watching Star Wars Clone Wars. And I did. And then I was like, what if I just picked up a bunch of books that were also Star Wars uh, Extended Universe? And then I picked up Dooku Jedi Lost because Dooku is one of Jake's favorite Sith characters. And I read it in like three days. Oh, that's such a good feeling. I also highly recommend, so the book itself is in script form, but you can listen. It's designed to be like a play, basically. So I believe that you can listen to it on Audible. That's so awesome. Yeah, it was really, really well done. I think I'm after I think after I finish it, I'm going to actually go listen to it. I read it first, but I want to hear how the performances come out. I love that so much. And in between doing all of that reading, you are also working hard on our LA live show, which is coming up. We are so excited to, on February 15th, do a, a very fun, short join the party one shot to open up for a Spirits Live. Listen, guys, it's going to be competitive. It's going to have to do with cryptids. We are so excited to do it. So please, if you live in California or the LA area, definitely come through, drive over from another state, make it a road trip, make it an excuse to visit LA. And most of all, 
Let your friends know who live in the area. Even if they don't listen to Spirits, it's going to be an extremely fun night. We always make sure that our live shows across all a multitude are fun and enjoyable, even if you don't know us or the podcast. So we would absolutely love to see your faces. Go to multitude.productions slash live to get your tickets now. Yeah. And also Amanda and the rest of the Multitude team have been publishing some incredible free resources that you can find on our website at multitude.productions slash resources. So they are there for you no matter what you want to make or what you're making online. It is the, in my opinion, the best way to get started in creating stuff on the internet. I think so too. And that includes like marketing a creative project or an accounting spreadsheet to keep track of the money you're putting into a given project. So while some of it's about podcasting, not all. And we just wanted to remind you that that is free to use for anybody who might find it helpful at multitude.productions. So without further ado, please enjoy episode 165, Bridget Imbolc and Irish Cosmology with Sharon Pace McLeod. We are so excited to welcome to the show Sharon Pace McLeod, who is a Celtic studies scholar, writer, teacher, and professional Celtic musician, as well as the author of several books about Celtic mythology and cosmology, which is how I found out about her. Sharon, welcome. Thank you so much. Sharon, I would love if you could kind of start off the episode here uh, by just like giving a brief overview of the Celtic mythology, cosmology, like if you had to sum it up for a, a student who's learning about it for the first time. Sure, sure. When I've done um, general teaching in the past, I actually went through some of the materials and tried to codify them into nine basic elements, each one of which, of course, is very rich and deep and um, something that can be explored in more depth. But I think one of the most important things that we see in terms of pagan Celtic religion and the mythology that was later written down in some early Irish and medieval Welsh sources, is this importance of the existence of a Celtic other world. It was something that was believed to exist at all times around us, not something that we connect with only after death, but something that was, that was always present. So the other world existed around us at all times, but it could be accessed more readily at certain places and at certain times of the day or the year. And this other world was considered to be the source of wisdom and skill, healing, and other attributes. And in, in early Irish sources, it was referred to as the realm of the sheath, and that's spelled S-I mm. with an accent, D, sheath. And the pagan gods of the early Irish were first referred to through this term, the ice sheetha, the people of the sheath, or in English, sometimes we call them the fairy mounds. And this word actually means seat, but it like the seat of the gods, the abode of the gods. And it seemed to have also a secondary meaning of peace, which is a little confusing because when you read the myths, as in most mythology, the gods and the spirits are not always at peace or fostering peace or peaceful in their interactions with themselves or with us. But what we come to understand is that this meaning of peace results from human beings having a right relationship with the other world and its inhabitants. And so mm -hmm. that just permeates a lot of the uh, literature that we, that we see where we can isolate different threads that have to do with pre-Christian belief. So that's that's kind of 
one of the most important things that we see. And the second thing that we see quite a bit of is the importance and the sacred quality of the land and its features, talking about hills, plains, groves, and bodies of water, some of which were associated with the gods, as well as trees and plants, animals, and birds. So those all figure very prominently as well. That tracks with me in the sort of like uh, common modern understanding of like, just don't touch the fairy mound. Just leave it alone. Build a roundabout <laughs> around it. Like, don't even go there. Exactly. A longtime stu- student of mine has lots of relatives in Ireland. And she said when she would be visiting her grandmother as a, as a young girl, and the grandmother would warn her away from the fairy mound. But being a young person, she went and was jumping up and down on top of it. And she always wondered if that if that uh, caused any disruptions. <laughs> How would my life be different? Yeah. <laughs> and so if you think about, well, who, who are these gods? Um, from everything that we can tell, the, the ancient Celts and not so ancient Celts were polytheistic, um, believing in many gods and goddesses. And that's a little bit different than some sources talk about where they get a little confused with modern earth religion um, say with um, the symbolism of the neo-pagan uh, lord and lady, god and goddess. And that's that's really different from what we see, where there are uh, many deities, male and female, and some are associated with the land, but also with aspects of society, like wisdom, skill, healing, abundance. And some of these deities um, seem to be regional or local to that particular landscape or that tribe. But others might have been more pan-Celtic, where we see names in Gaul and Britain and Ireland that are cognate, that are uh, linguistic equivalents. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of interesting that some of these deities might have had a very uh, wide area in which they were venerated. Um, So that's that's a very complex topic, looking at all the um, information and the attributes of of these gods and goddesses. I'm sure. Not to mention how they move across places that people perhaps did not frequently move between. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of them that that really, again, is so important for understanding the mythology is a figure called the goddess of sovereignty. And she has different names in different regions and in different stories, but you can kind of identify that we're talking about this figure. Um, It was only with her blessing that a king's reign would be successful. And in some of the stories, she sort of chooses and tests a a candidate for kingship to see if he's worthy. Is he generous? Is he truthful? Is he brave? Different things that, uh, attributes that he should embody. And if he passes the test, then she will empower him to reign, but he cannot be successful without connection with her in some way. And in some of the stories, they actually have sex, and that's sort of this this deep connection that they have. But in later times, when people saw these stories, they didn't understand what that was. And so they started to portray her as being wanton, as you know, just different different aspects that were twisted after a while because they didn't really understand who she was. And right. She's associated with the land, fertility, abundance, but also warfare and death and destruction. 
Mm-hmm. And her most important symbols are the horse and the raven. So sometimes you'll see those uh, animals showing up in the myths. And she can appear as a, a beautiful woman, an animal, or an old hag. But this is different from Robert Graves' 1949 basic invention of the term maiden mother crone. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something he came up with. And I think this is one of the things that might have led him to muse upon that. So she, she's a very important figure that you see showing up in, in a lot of different guises. Um, it's very, very interesting. And does she have like a first name or is she just known as the goddess of sovereignty? She, uh, she will have a name. Um, different goddesses who seem to have this aspect in Irish tradition. We have the Morrigan, the great queen, mm-hmm. whose name seems to have been um, Anu. It looks like Morrigan was a title. Mm. She had a sister, Macha, who uh, also has that attribute. You'll see some of that in one of the sagas, a figure known as Queen Medhav or Queen Maeve in, mm. um, in English. And she has some of these attributes, but in that saga, they become a little bit, um, a little bit twisted. Um, so there's, there's numerous, I mean, I would say there were close to 10 or 12 stories in which you'll see a female figure in Irish literature anyway, who, um, once you sort of look at the whole totality of what's going on, uh, that she is this, that she is this really important, uh, figure that we see, um, see throughout. And you'll see that also in, in, uh, medieval Welsh literature. You'll see, um, like Rhiannon, um, which means divine queen. You'll see that, um, as well. That is so fascinating. And I, I love this idea that it's, to my modern mind, right, like growing up not in a monarchy, it um, it seems like having a sort of test as to whether or not a uh, potential ruler is not just like the the next male heir to the throne, but some amount of like, are you ready? Are you good? Are you just? Hmm. That's such an interesting kind of layer to put on top of it. Absolutely. I think that's a very important point. And I think something that really resonates in this day and age in particular, when we have so much concern for the, um, the, the environment, is that there seems to be this connection with the idea of stewardship of the land. You don't, you don't see, for example, as you would see in the Old Testament, where man has dominion over nature. Right. There's, there's more of an interconnection, as you would see in really any traditional culture. And so one of the important things that that the potential ruler, I like to say that because it leaves it open for male or female, but the potential <laughs> yeah. ruler um, must be able to serve as a steward of the land. And that is also one of the attributes of this goddess. So it all, it all ties in. And I think people find that just very resonant with all the challenges that we have right now regards to mm. um, environment and landscape. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if the sort of interaction between people and the gods in uh, pre-Christian Ireland and Celtic societies more broadly, um, how do they interact with the gods? Like, how did they interact with the with the sheet? That's an excellent question. One of the things that we do see cropping up in the literature is um, you will see different people interacting at, in liminal places, places that are so, sort of on the border between this world and the other world. 
Uh, some of those would be, of course, at the sheath mounds, which originally were um, non-Celtic. They were originally Neolithic burial mounds. And so that was quite a ways before the Iron Age, where we first start to see Celtic culture. Um, but also on the tops of hills and mountains, um, the edge of a lake at sacred springs and wells. So places where we come into contact with the other. And I think some of this must really tie in with a belief in a triune cosmos, which would be the upper world, the middle world where we live, and the lower world. And that lower world does not equate with hell, and the upper world does not equate with heaven. This is a um, quite archaic, but also still present in many traditional cultures, um, that you have these three worlds that that connect certain ways. And so if you think about it, if you go to the top of a mountain, you're at a place where you would be sort of on the edge between this world and the upper world. If you go to the edge of a body of water, say a lake or a river, then you're starting to connect with this world as connecting with the lower world. So at these liminal places, you'll see different uh, rituals take place. And the Celts um, were especially fond of making offerings of valuable items either into offering pits, so that was down into the earth, or into bodies of water. And archaeologists have excavated some of these places and uncovered in incredible things that were given, th things of value. And so we're sort of trained to think of the word sacrifice in, ter in terms of how that was looked at in Christian tradition. But the word sacrifice means to make sacred. And so you're giving something of value. They would create beautiful jewelry. And sometimes it was too big to be worn by a human. So you can tell that was made mm. specially for the gods mm. or things that were put in water and broken before they were put in to show that it no longer can be used here. And wow, I think I that's, love that. yeah, it's really fascinating. And also when people were asking for healing, they would carve a little image of a person or the part of the body that needed healing, and that would go into the, the body of water. So they've uncovered immense amounts of things from these offering hordes, um, typically in lakes, uh, but also in, in the rivers as well. And, and I think that's really interesting to th think about that concept. And when the Romans came in contact with the Celts and, and commented quite a bit on their culture and their religion, they said that when the Celts would have a ceremony, there would be a great mound of valuable things in a sacred place, and they were just left there, and no one would touch it. And the Romans were amazed at this, that it could just sit there, and no one was sneaking in and pilfering something you know, from it. Yeah. Um, so there would be offering ceremonies, and we don't have specific liturgy from the Iron Age, because the Celts typically did not... Um, commit their religious beliefs to write in writing. But we are starting to be able to see aspects of things that could have been liturgy in some of the very earliest Irish literature. And scholars are, are just now really starting to come to a place where they don't feel constrained by Judeo-Christian belief, nor feeling too constrained by 
the concern of getting tenure <laughs> so that they can actually <laughs> look at these things and say, yes, there, there, nothing like this exists in Christian tradition. The, the language is early. The symbolism fits with other things that we know. And therefore, this likely looks like a, a pre-Christian verse or a pre-Christian poem. And so if you look at that literature, you can start to sort of piece something together. And that's something I'm going to be working on um, upcoming after I finish the book that I'm currently working on. I've been working on researching the very earliest um, Celtic instrumental music and recitation of poetry and song. And once I get that finished, I'm going to be doing a book. That will be a book and CD, and then there will be another book and CD saying, well, how would we put that together with what we know about cosmology and ritual? Mm. I am pre-ordering it right now. Oh, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> and I think it's so important because like many traditional cultures, so much about Celtic culture and belief that you read in popular books or on the internet is is just false. It, it's so inaccurate. And it's really misrepresenting a culture that we don't have the right to alter how they are, how they would represent themselves. Um, and so a lot of my work feels like a salmon swimming upstream. I'm trying to connect people with this information, but I am constantly brought up against this really torrent of misinformation that's on the internet, that's in a lot mm. of the books, so that I can then get to the point where people can say, oh, that's not it. Okay. And set that aside, and then let's let's be open, uh, open-minded, open-hearted to what really was going on, and then to have people experience that, embody that, um, try to live that in some way. So it's a kind of a gargantuan task, and probably yeah. a, a fool's errand, but I'm I'm up for the task. So. <laughs> Yeah, I would I would actually love to hear you speak a little bit more just because I know that music is your background uh, of the importance of music in Celtic, you know, traditions, as well as the recitation of those stories. That, and that is that's something we do see so much of, you know, in the literature is talking about they might say that so and so sang this or spoke this or recited this. And we have to go, well, are they singing in the way that we think of song, you know, mm. with a very elaborate melody? And I don't think at that point that that would have been how some of it took place. It might have been a little more like a chant in some ways, you know, where you have a smaller, a smaller range of notes, you know, just a smaller, a smaller vocal range. And I've been really studying how that works in different, in different cultures. And there have been a few conferences where Celticists have gotten together with some musicians who have been trying to sort of research and reconstruct what some of the music might have been like. And it was really wonderful to see them working together and taking some chances to, to say, well, how might it have been? And I remember one scholar, Virginia Blankenhorn, did exactly what I thought in my mind. She took a bit of a poem, and first she just recited it, as we would think of, you know, spoken, but kind of declaimed and not everyday speech. And then she did it with sort of a just a few notes, and then she sang it with a melody that she created. And it was just great to listen to not only how does that sound, but how does it work? Because 
music, poetry, liturgy is supposed to create an effect. If you listen to a song, it should impact you in some way. And so listening to all of these different experiments, they were all interesting and I think historically fairly sound, but some of them, as a musician, I would say a musician would never do that for this reason. You know, mm. um, a singer would, would think of it this way and a harpist would think of it this other way. So we're trying to put together this combination of how the instruments sounded, what their strengths were, what kind of a, a physical impact they would have on a person's mind, body, spirit as they're listening to it. Um, so that's a pretty intense task to, to look at this. Um, and I worked a couple of years ago with um, Professor, Professor William Gillis, who used to be head of Celtic at University of Edinburgh. And we would sit and look at pieces of poetry, and we would both experiment with that same thing. Let, let me just speak and declaim it. Let me try and sort of chant it. Let me improvise a melody um, with that. So we're still kind of in process with how that might have been. But one thing is certain, there's so much discussion of poetry, singing, songs, prayers, curses, spells, invocations, incantations, that we just, we can just really sense what an important role it had in the culture and in the religion and in ritual, which is something that we want to sort of put back together if we can. That sounds like such an amazing process. Yeah, of collaboration. And I think a great kind of endorsement of people with careers having like hobbies, art, loves, you know, other things that they can kind of bring to their understanding of their material. Absolutely. And, and that's not, not always the case. You know, some scholars have the thing that they do and they just, and they're good at that, but they might not be able to do the next thing. Um, like some of the linguists can talk to you a great deal about linguistics and different things like that. But if you ask them to interpret a piece of literature, they would say, oh, I don't, no, no, I don't go there. Um, and I think in more recent times, say in the last decade or so, you see a lot more cooperation between people in Celtic studies with different specialties, but also more interdisciplinary connection with archaeologists and historians and you know, people in, in different fields are starting to come together and and really starting to do some very interesting work in regards to, say, um, excavation of ritual sites and bringing different people together to say, to, to kind of show what they know and put it together. And I think that's really starting to, to yield some very, very exciting, exciting results that for me will be very impactful, you know, moving forward with this work. Yeah. I mean, no aspect of culture is developed in isolation. So it makes complete sense that a more kind of holistic approach would yield a lot of results for everybody. Yeah. Julia, our first sponsor is new to the show, which I am so excited about. GC2B is the original chest binder designed by trans people for the community. This is a gender and identity affirming apparel company started in 2014 by Marley Washington, a trans man of color, whose goal was to create something safe, accessible, and comfortable for people of all shapes, sizes, and colors. GC2B always aims to accommodate and celebrate the full spectrum of humanity. So what that means in practice is there are different styles available, both like racer backs and half binders and tanks. 
There are five shades of nude because there's no such thing as as one universal skin color and seven other colors as well. Red, blue, green, purple, black, white and gray, depending on what works for you and your outfits. So there really is something for everyone. They also ship out of both the U.S. and the U.K. So if you're in the U.K., go to gc2b.io. That's their U.K. specific site. And for both sites, there are free sizing assistance available. So just reach out to the care team. They are super supportive and they will suggest the size that works best for you. If they suggest something that doesn't end up working out and you want to exchange it, they cover the full cost of that exchange. I think one of my favorite parts about GC2B is the fact that they donate products to organizations that help them redistribute binders to those who otherwise wouldn't have access to it. So in 2019, they donated 3,593 binders, which provided support for more than 34 organizations. That's so cool. I love that they track it instead of being like, we donate. It's a real number. And these folks are really great to work with. They're also offering 10% off your order on gc2b.co using code SPIRITS at checkout. So that's the code SPIRITS for 10% off at gc2b.co or if you're in the UK, gc2b.io. Thanks. Speaking of fashion designed for me, Amanda, our next sponsor is Stitch Fix. Yay! Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that delivers your favorite clothing, shoes, and accessories directly to you. We've talked about how much we love Stitch Fix. I love seeing that box on my front doorstep being like, Julia, ready? Are you ready for the cute outfits that are coming? (laughs) I'm like, yes, Stitch Fix, I am. Because all you have to do with Stitch Fix is you complete a style profile and then an expert personal stylist sends you a box of hand-picked items based on your style and preferences. Uh, With Stitch Fix, everyone can look their best. They have solutions for men, women, non-binary people, kids all over the U.S. and also now in the U.K. Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's no subscription required. Uh, You can choose between either automatic shipments or getting new pieces on demand. And shipping exchanges and returns are always free. And the $20 styling fee is automatically applied towards anything you keep in your box. Keep anything, that $20 goes straight to that shirt or pants or bag or shoes. But if you love everything and you end up keeping everything that's in your box, I hope you signed up at stitchfix.com slash spirits because that will give you 25% off when you keep all of your items. Yep, that's stitchfix.com slash spirits. Stitchfix.com slash spirits. Thanks. And finally, we are sponsored by HoneyBook. The end of the month and beginning of a new month is not just like a nice time to like take stock of things generally and set intentions for the month ahead. But also for me, it is an exciting time uh, because I get to send out all the invoices to get us paid for the sponsorships that we do and the freelance work and the studio rentals that we do here at Multitude. And that task is much easier because of HoneyBook, which is an online business management tool that organizes client communications, bookings, contracts, invoices all in one place. For freelancers, entrepreneurs or small business owners, it's important that all of your tools communicate. So it is great that HoneyBook already communicates with QuickBooks, Google Suite, Excel, MailChimp, other services that you probably already use. Best of all, you can automate stuff with HoneyBook. (laughs) That busy work really gets a lot easier when you use their templates for emails, proposals, brochures, even invoices. So you look professional, but it doesn't take a ton of time. Simplify your to-do list and stay in control with HoneyBook. And right now, they're offering listeners 50% off when you visit tryhoneybook.com slash spirits. That applies to both the annual and the monthly subscriptions at tryhoneybook.com slash spirits. Yep, you can go to tryhoneybook.com slash spirits for 50% off your first year. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks. And now let's get back to the show. I am dying to know a little bit about the the figure that we came here to discuss, Bridget. Is there anything else kind of relevant to setting up the the world in which she is relevant that we should cover before diving into her story? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> one possible segue is that um, this figure that we refer to as Bridget, who, as far as we can tell in a pagan incarnation, her name would have been Brieg, B-R-I with an accent, G, Brieg, and sort of anglicized Bridget to some some extent. Mm. And she was a goddess with three very important attributes, which were poetry, healing, and smithcraft. Mm. And so having just been talking about the importance of poetry and music, she's a goddess that really resonates with with a lot of people these days. And you'll actually find groups of women or groups of men and women who feel a special devotion to her. And they read everything they can about her. And we don't actually have an enormous amount of information about Bridget the goddess. There is this one reference, as I just mentioned, where she, the description says that she has two sisters also named Bridget. But what we're really seeing <laughs> is a, a goddess with three aspects. Mm. And again, this is different from modern ideas about, say, maiden mother crone. This is a different kind of triplism that you see a lot in Indo-European cultures. Beyond those three aspects, she does show up here and there in the mythology, but not not a huge amount. And one of the, the biggest sagas, the Battle of Moitura, it says that she was the person who um, developed keening, which was a a way of uh, sort of wailing and lamenting the dead that, that still was going on in Ireland into fairly recent times, despite efforts of the church to, to stamp it out. So keening mm. has been um, quite important in Scotland and Ireland for a very long time. And that was something that was said to have been developed I guess, originated with the goddess Brig, because she had a son that died and then she was wailing and lamenting him. And that's sort of the origin legend of that. She does also seem to have a connection with fertility and abundance. And you'll see that going forward in time into the folklore. So we have that, that figure about whom we know a, a few things. And then we have a figure called St. Bridget. And she has a lot of really interesting stories, a lot of miracle stories, working magic, different things. And if you look at the life of St. Bridget, you can see certain elements that may have once been associated with, with the goddess. We can't say that for certain, but a lot of people who are very interested in her 
I think feel that there's sort of a, a continuity, kind of an umbrella of attributes. And so they will, even if they are pagan, they will look at the life of St. Bridget to see some of the amazing things that she did. I remember one story, um, it was at Easter time and there wasn't enough ale and she did some kind of miraculous working and there was copious ale for everybody at, at Easter. <laughs> the best of all things. <laughs> Very exactly. Irish. Or in another story, a man came to her and, and he felt like his, his wife you know, was no longer interested in him or romantically enamored of him. And she did a love spell so the, that they would sort of fall back in love with each other. Hmm. So St. Bridget has a lot of really interesting stories. And I think some of them, not all of them, but some of them, I think we would be fairly secure in saying that they represented attributes that the goddess might have also embodied. So she's she's very interesting, very interesting figure. And and of course Saint Bridget is one of the three main saints of Ireland along with Saint Patrick and Saint Columba. Mm -hmm. So she has been around for, for quite some time. That leads us to our holiday that's upcoming. Um, there we go. a few days after this broadcast on the first of February is uh Imolk, which is a pre Christian holiday that seems to have been associated with the goddess Brieg. And it was really the beginning of springtime, um, doing divination to prepare for planting the seeds in the ground in a little while, not so much in New England um, or northern Canada, but in Ireland and maybe southern Scotland, you could start talking about when it was going to be time to, to plant seeds. So there was a preparation for reconnecting with the land. But it was also time when the animals would start to give birth. And if you think about the food cycle in these traditional cultures, you had food growing all through the summer and you started to harvest in the fall and put food away. But by the time you got to Imolk, there was food scarcity. You, you really were, were concerned, were we going to have enough food to make it through the winter? Mm. And so when the sheep gave birth and they would create this very rich milk for their offspring. But that was the time of the year where people could reconnect with having fresh milk and then cheese. And this was hugely important for survival to make it through the, the seasons, the four seasons with different types of foods being available in the different seasons. But at Imbolc, you not only had the birth of animals, but you had the return of milk and this preparation mm -hmm. for working with the land. And, and um, so just a very important time physically. But the folklore is, I think, so beautiful at that time. So many interesting traditions. And one of the most lovely, to my mind, is that they would take um, grain and they would fashion it, not the grain itself, but the stalks, and they would fashion it into a dolly, a, a doll. And they would dress her, and this was the representation of Bridget. Mm -hmm. And they would take her from door to door, and people would dec they would decorate her with ribbons, shells, stones, just lovely things. And they would go from door to door so that people could be in the presence of this representation of Bridget, and they would um, show veneration to her. And the people that brought it around would also be obtaining some food as they went around to each house. So there would be a feast afterwards. Um, so the, the folklore is 
is very, very rich at this time. So many different types of folk traditions that people can connect with in this time and they can re-embody them, reenact them. And not all the folklore that we have lends itself to that. For example, I'm trying to think of one. They might say, go out into the backyard and go to the corn rick and do this thing. Well, I don't happen to have corn ricks out in my backyard, so I can't <laughs> you do know, that. It's not a common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I do live in the country and you will see that, but mm. I don't have any right here. So some of the folklore is interesting symbolically, but not something that can really be brought forward in time very easily. But sure. some of the in-bulk traditions, they're very home-oriented and they lend themselves to people being able to connect with the symbolism and the authentic folklore that people find very enriching uh, at this time. As a uh, as a former cheesemonger, I got very excited when you started speaking about the uh, the coming back of the milk times and the cheese oh. and whatnot. So, oh. <laughs> and and sheep's sheep's milk is so rich too. You oh, know, it's, it's so good. It's very very good. Mm. We've got to do an episode on uh, cheese making folklore at some point, Julia. At some, point, at some point, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's also a time of the year that you really need a holiday. I've always, my birthday's at the end of February. And so mm-hmm. I've always felt that it's, you know, while I can't have a pool party or anything, I do appreciate <laughs> that it's a time of year where like you really need something to just put on the calendar and like mark your days toward. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the timing of this makes complete sense to me. And I, I'm living in New England currently and for, you know, here that's about the coldest time of year. It's bitterly cold. Mm. And you're like, really? We're talking about spring? That's months away. But <laughs> these holidays originated in um, probably in Ireland. And so you will have a different climate there. And sure. so you will find people around the world. Well, of course, people in the lower, the southern hemisphere have to flip the whole calendar <laughs> upside down to, to, uh, to play along seasonally. But it is a challenge for people in different regions, say, um, I'm in Massachusetts, but I have friends in Western Canada, and they are having a different um, climactic situation than I have here. And people that are in California or Texas or New Zealand or South Africa. And so people do have to do a little tweaking of the calendar to work with the place in which they find themselves, you know, Celtic people with Celtic ancestry are all over the world now. And so trying to connect with these traditions, some of it works very, very well, but some of the folk traditions we do have to, to shift a little bit to, to make sense where people are now, you know, in the diaspora. That makes sense as well, because, you know, applying dates, which we just kind of make up to the calendar, especially something that has so much to do with the land um, and with cycles of production. uh, I would, I I don't know. That makes complete sense to me that they would move it. One thing that was kind of interesting is there was a belief that if you recited the genealogy of Bridget, that this was a verbal act, uh, you know, using words of power that would confer great protection on people. And that's the song that I was speaking about on the Moore CD that people might be interested to hear is a recitation in English and in Scottish Gaelic. Um, where this particular prayer comes from, that this was something that would happen at a gathering at this time, this recitation of the genealogy of Bridget to bring protection at this, you know, really very precarious time of year. Um, and we, we did that with, um, some harp 
accompaniment. So that's something that people might enjoy hearing, um, a, a piece of authentic folklore from the the Scottish Gaelic tradition at Imbolc. I think that's a wonderful note to close the episode on. Um, but before we do that, is there anything else that you would like to share with us about Bridget and the world in which she had some significance originally, because she still does today? <laughs> well, of course, before before writing, we see it's hard to know that her name, the, the word Brig means exalted. And so sometimes there's a, a a worry, is this her name? Is this a title? And you'll see, for example, there was a goddess Brigantia who was um, venerated in Britain. And so people are like, is that the same goddess? Or is that just a goddess who was exalted? Um, some of the representation, representations of Brigantia, some elements look like they might have a connection with Bridget, with Brig, but we can't say for certain. But as a pagan goddess who seems to have her roots in Ireland. We know quite a bit about pagan Ireland and about, we don't have written records from the Iron Age, but we are very lucky in terms of the very rich body of literature. Um, that when the Christians came in, they brought writing in that style to Ireland. And so different things started to become part of the written record where we can start to look at how people were living um, originally in, in all over the Celtic regions, they would live in tribes of anywhere from a few hundred to many thousands of people in a tribe with, with tribal names. And so that's sort of the on the ground cultural setting in which we, we think about these deities. And I think sometimes people just, they want so much for them to be just nature deities. And I say just meaning solely. Um, not, right. And, and, but we really have to understand all of these deities as having a very strong connection with culture, not just the land, but culture. Like I said before, healing, smithcraft, poetry, warfare, wisdom, poetry, music, crafts. Um, and that's something that I think is a little bit misunderstood about Celtic deities. And so when you see a goddess like Bridget with her three primary attributes of poetry, smithcraft, and healing, you can kind of see that they had a different way of arranging concepts of thinking about the sacred and how it reflects and connects with the mundane world, which is a little bit different than I think we have been led to understand when most of us learned about Greco-Roman mythology in school. And that was really the only mythology that we were given any access to. And you can't really say that all cultures, all ancient cultures, organized their pantheon in the way that the Greeks and the Romans did. <laughs> Each one is its own thing and really needs to be taken at face value um, and to be understood on its own terms is, is very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's kind of the the mission of our show. And I'm so grateful to you for coming on and telling us all about Celtic cosmology. I can absolutely see how this could be a podcast all of its own. Mm -hmm. um, but Sharon, would you let everybody know where they can follow you online? Uh, and certainly starting with your books, Celtic Cosmology and the Otherworld, Celtic Myth and Religion, and the Divine Feminine in Ancient Europe are great places to start. Absolutely. Um, those are all available online. And the first book I did was actually um, on McFarland under a pen name. I'm sorry, not McFarland. 
Red Wheel Weiser under a pen name, uh, Sharon Nekmacha, and that's called Queen of the Night. And it's looking at lunar symbolism in Indo-European, but mostly in Celtic cultures. Um, And that was followed by Celtic Myth and Religion, where I took 20 years of my teaching notes and put them all into one book to try and bring people up to speed on this culture and this mythology. Uh, And then we put out The Divine Feminine in Ancient Europe, which I had um, written for another publisher, but it ended up being put out by McFarland. And then more recently, Celtic Cosmology and The Other World came out last year, and that's um, that's gotten very good reviews. Uh, the next book, which should be out next year sometime, is Early Celtic Poetry and Wisdom Texts. And as I mentioned before, that will be followed by a book on early Celtic instrumental music and vocal art forms, and then a book on Celtic ritual, Celtic deities, myths, druids, poets, and seers. There's so much that needs to be uh, put together. So I am on Facebook. Um, there's also a public uh, Facebook group that people can join called Tuatha Imish, which is T-U-A-T-H-A-I-M-B-A-I-S. And that's a place where, where people can connect. I'm, I'm online quite a bit on social media, different groups, so I'm not too hard to find. And I do teaching and music as well. So there's always something going on. Um, uh. With, with Celtic myth and religion. Fantastic, and gives so much uh, for us and our listeners to look forward to. So I'm very grateful for having me on this show. It's a, an exciting topic and wishing everybody a very blessed Imolk. Thank you so much. Thank you. And listeners, remember, stay creepy, stay cool. Thanks again to our sponsors at gc2b.co. Use the code SPIRITS for 10% off your purchase. At stitchfix.com spirits, get 25% off if you keep all five items in your box. And at tryhoneybook.com spirits, you can get 50% off your first year of Honeybook. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Just $1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.